0: Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Prayer in its most basic form is a conversation with God. So we don't need to make it difficult if you've never prayed before, you don't understand prayers. You talking to God and then listening as God talks to you. It's a two-way conversation as you talk to God. And yet as we grow in the Lord, it's important for every single one of us to recognize and realize that there are different kinds of prayer. So there's prayers of petition where we're making requests with thanksgiving to God. There are prayers of intercession where we're praying for other people, we're interceding on their behalf. There's prayers that are confession where we're confessing our own sin's Possibly, but even the sins of our community or the sins of our country. We can do prayers of confession. Just prayers of command where we command. You just heard a prayer of command where we command something in Jesus' name to happen. There's fasting. Jesus said some things only come by fasting and prayer. There are prayers that involve shouting when the Children of Israel shouted. The walls of Jericho came down. It was a prayer that shouted. This morning, I want to talk to you about a prayer that binds and looses. You see, many Christians know one kind of prayer, and they think, well, you know, I, I use this. This is the way I pray, and that's fine as far as it goes, but the problem with only Having one way of praying or understanding one aspect of prayers is kind of like a carpenter who only has one tool in his toolbox. All he has is a hammer. And if everything, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. I mean, all you can do is pound on things. Uh, a more skilled carpenter understands the, the value of having different kinds of saws and other kinds of tools, and, and that advances his ability to do things. And I want to suggest it's the same way in prayer. One kind of prayer will take you so far, but some things won't happen unless you learn to pray other kinds of prayers. Some things won't happen unless you fast, some things won't won't happen unless you give that shout of praise. The same is true with binding and loosing. Some things will only happen when you and I understand the authority, the privilege, and the power behind going to Jesus in prayer and binding and loosing certain things in our life and in the lives of others. To do that, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk to you on a unique passage that's found in Matthew chapter 16. And as we look at the passage, we're gonna see five words and so you can use those kind of as as ways of hanging our thought or seeing where we're at in the passage. And so the first word is, revelation. When you come to Matthew chapter 16, the Lord gives Peter, a follower of Jesus, a revelation. Let's read it beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, highlighted that because we're going to talk a little bit about that city. It figures prominently in what happens in the story. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? If Jesus asks you a question when you're praying, it's because Jesus wants to give you a revelation. They replied, some say John the Baptist. You say, why would they say that? Because John the Baptist had been killed by Herod, and King Herod said he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say Elijah. Why would they say Elijah? Because before Messiah came, Elijah was supposed to come and prepare the way. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? That is arguably the most important question any human being will ever answer. Who is Jesus? You have to decide who he is before you know how you're going to respond to him. You have to know who he is before you can experience his saving power in your life. And the more you and I know about who he is, the more we can say about him because we've learned about him, the more we'll experience his power and his presence in our life. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father. Now, for students of the Bible, and I won't take a lot of time with this, but this is the only time Jesus ever calls him Simon, son of Jonah. We won't look at it, but if you look at Matthew chapter 16 at the start of this chapter, there are Pharisees and Sadducees and they come to Jesus, and they ask him to do a miraculous sign. And he says, there's no miraculous sign gonna be given you except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Jonah, if you're familiar with the story, was swallowed by a whale and spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. It's a picture of Jesus Death and resurrection, that's what he's talking about. But I want to suggest to you that it also has to do with something we're going to read about here. Because Jonah, he went down, chapter 2 Jonah tells us, he goes down into the depths, not only the ocean, but he says the depths of the grave. I want to suggest to you, Jonah died in the whale but on his way down in the whale, and then was resurrected, which is why he's a, a, a perfect analogy of Jesus. But as he's going down, from the depths of Sheol, he says, the realm of the dead, he says, I prayed. And what happened when he prayed? He cried out to God. And what was the result? The city of Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities on the face of the earth, repented at his preaching in a matter of three days. It's an amazing thing. I believe Jesus calls him this, Matthew mentions this, because what Jesus is going to talk about is the grave, he's gonna talk about the realm of the dead, and he's gonna talk about the power of praying. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Here's the thing about prayer. When you and I are praying, prayer, as I said, is not a one-way conversation. It's not where you give your list and then run off. No, prayer is about you and I spending time with God. It's about you and I talking to God, but listening to God. Maybe that happens as you're listening to worship music, but you leave space in your time with God for God to speak to your heart, and when you do that, God will reveal things to you. He will tell you how to solve problems. He will tell you what to do. I remember when we were praying about getting the ramp that we have out there on 65 Highway, and, and MoDot had said no, and, and I'm the kind of person that if you tell me no, no just means ask another time in another way. So I'd ask like two more times, and they were like, we don't, we don't get what you don't understand about the word no, but no means no, and no, you don't get that ramp. So I was praying one day in my office, and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, Talk to these two men in the congregation. I didn't know anything about their connections and their relationship, but I asked them to take this and run with it. It was a revelation that showed me how to solve a problem. Listen, when you and I are spending time with the Lord, when we're around the Lord, God wants to give you insight into how how to solve a problem. Some of you, you're just simply throwing up the request, hoping something happens, and God wants to show you how it is that he wants to help you solve your problem. We could understand Revelation this way. Revelation is when God imparts knowledge wisdom and discernment that cannot be attained by natural human reasoning. It's when God tells us what you and I in our human mind would not know, we may not understand, and we we can't even see or discern, but when he tells us, he's giving us that revelation so that you and I can pray according to that or act according to that for the purpose of having God work in our life. How does God reveal things? Well, it may be like the story I just told you where he speaks to your heart. It could be where you're reading the Bible and if you read the Bible much, you'll have this experience where all of the sudden you're reading maybe in a passage you've read before, but it's as if the words jump off the page. In that moment, God is speaking to you. God is revealing something to you. Or you're encountering a problem and God gives you solutions, but God is a God who reveals things to us. And let me just say this, because I think this is really important. Even when God reveals something to you, it will take faith to believe it. God is never going to reveal so much to you that you will not need faith in the follow through this so is what stops a lot of people from walking with God because they're like, well, you know, I just I need to know this, I need to know that. No, no, no. He's told you enough to do what you need to do to know what you need to know so that he can do what only he can do. And it requires faith. And God wants to build our faith so we can be strong in faith and in the power of his name. So revelation, God gives it to us. Number two, second word, illustration illustration. Peter has a revelation, now he has an illustration. Verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, the Greek word there, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So what you have here is you have a a bit of a play on words. So Petros means like a little tiny pebble or a stone. Petra means like a big, ginormous rock. So Jesus says, I'll tell you, you're a little tiny stone, but on this rock, I will build my church. You say, what's that mean? Well, if you're from a Catholic background, Catholics would teach that this this has to do with papal, papal succession, that Peter is the first pope, the first bishop of Rome, every pope after that has papal succession to Peter because of this statement that Jesus was saying, I'm gonna build the church on you, Peter. If you're Protestant, you would say, no, 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 no. Uh, there's obviously a difference between Petros and Petra. So he's talking about the rock. What is the rock? He is, uh, he is saying that the rock is the confession Peter made. Uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is saying on the rock of that confession, I will build my church. I would suggest to you that the text really doesn't support either one of those. That there's something else that's happening here. Remember, they're at Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is on the northern edge of Galilee, the region of Galilee, but it is a thoroughly Roman city. It is a wicked city. It is a spiritually dark city. It is a city given over to idol worship and the occult. It is so spiritually dark that no Jewish rabbi would ever go to Caesarea Philippi. And yet here is Jesus, and he not only goes, but he takes his disciples with him, and he does it for the purpose of teaching them by way of an object lesson, I believe, at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, there was a ginormous rock that was there. We'll show you a picture of it. So there's this big, massive rock. This is modern-day Caesarea Philippi, this is what they would have seen. And at this rock, there would be all kinds, carved into the rock or all kinds of uh, creches and shrines to a whole bunch of pagan gods. You, can, you see, it's all over the rocks everywhere. There would be, somewhere in here, would be a, a temple backed up against the rock to the god Pan. He's one of the Roman deities. He'd be the counterpart of the Old Testament, uh, Baal. So he's a fertility god. And if you were to walk up to the temple, you would see the priests there um, having sexual relations with animals, uh, which is something Pan did. You'd also see them having sexual relationship with temple prostitutes. Or if you wanted to worship, you would go in and you were a worshiper. You would do that. So it's very vile. There's all of that. There's all of this other. And then there's this, this hole in the rock. And this hole in the rock was known as the gate of Hades. So when Jesus talks about, and the gate of Hades, as we're going to read in a moment, shall not prevail against it, this is the gate of Hades in the ancients' mind. This, they believed, was the opening to the underworld. So let me give you a little little theology here. So Hades in Roman theology would be the realm of the dead. And so there would be gods that would go there. Uh, there would be people that would go there when they died. In Christian theology, um, there is a realm of the dead that in general is called Sheol. So when we read about Jonah, it says, from Sheol, I cried out to you. That's the realm of the dead. It was divided into two places. There was the realm of the wicked dead called Hades. And it's a place of torment, a place of fire. There's the realm of the righteous dead, and it was known as Abraham's bosom or was known as paradise. So remember when Jesus on the cross says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's talking about today you'll be in the the righteous area of the realm of the dead. I'm gonna gonna give you a little bit of theological background so you kind of understand some of this. Um, Beyond that, Jesus, when he died, the Bible says he didn't just lay there asleep in the tomb. He was very busy. He descended into Sheol. And he went to both sides of Sheol. He went to the realm of the righteous dead and set the captives free. All of the righteous people he took out of Sheol, took them up into heaven. So all of them, David, Abraham, all of them are in heaven now. He emptied out that part of Shield known as paradise. On the part known as Hades, he went there, and the Bible tells us there are demonic beings who violated God's directives and are in chains in Hades. Revelation chapter 9 it talks about Hades being opened up, the pit being opened up, and some of these demonic beings will be released on the earth, which will increase the terror of that time. But Jesus went down there, and Jesus, when he went into the realm of the dead, preached his victory and took from Satan the keys of death, hell, and the grave. In fact, he says in Revelation chapter 1, I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. So he took them back from Satan. So all of this is wrapped up in, in this. There is the pagan imagery, and then there is... The, the imagery uh, that is biblical. We take it a step further. Hades is not only a place in Roman theology, but Hades was uh, one of three major gods in the Roman pantheon. There was Jupiter, who was the, the leader of the, of the Roman gods. There was Neptune, or Poseidon, the Greek version. He's over the sea world. And then there was Hades, who was over the region of the dead. So Hades is not only a place, Hades in Roman theology is a person. In Christian theology, we understand it is the place where the unrighteous dead go. You say, I thought they went to hell. Hell is not open for business yet. So hell was created for the devil and his angels, and someday hell will be opened up and people will move from Hades into hell, and you can read about that in other places in your Bible. So Jesus shows up and he says to Peter, he says, you are a little stone, but upon this rock, upon, Jesus doesn't just build his kingdom on the nice and beautiful places. He built his kingdom on the dark, on the ugly, on the evil, on the wicked places. And he says, even the powers of darkness cannot stop me. The point is... Peter, you're a little rock and this seems really, really big, but I'm telling you, I'm going to give you some things and it's going to make such a difference that even hell will not be able to stand against you, but you're going to be able to reclaim the earth in my name. Not just the good places, but the dark places, the evil places, the wicked places, the places where people are in bondage. I'm going to build my church. That's the imagery think we could also say this. And I just mentioned this as an aside. Here he is standing in front of this rock and probably they're not the trees covering all the creches and all the shrines but it's all the pantheon of Roman gods and what he is saying, hey, who do you say I am? Here's all these false gods. Who do you say I am? And Peter revealed by, by he has a revelation from God and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So this becomes then an illustration. Now we're ready for the explanation. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. How is Jesus going to reclaim the earth? How is Jesus going to build his kingdom? He says, I will build my church. Now, that's an interesting word there. It's a word in the Greek. It's ekklesia, and it comes from two words, ek, out of, klesis, a calling. So you're called out of. What is a church? We're a people called out of the world. We are a people who are separated. We're a people who are holy. But it also means assembly. It's a gathering of people. In Greco-Roman times, though, it had an even different meaning. Most people who are familiar with secular Greek would have understood Ecclesia to to be a, a governmental ruling body. Like the Senate. Like the House of Representatives. Here's what Jesus is saying. You see that big rock over there? Peter, you're a little stone. You may not think you're much, against a rock like that, but I am going to build my governmental body, my ruling assembly. I'm gonna build my Senate of Righteousness that will reclaim the earth, and they will be so powerful, they will be so strong, I'm gonna give them such authority that even the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. Let's talk a minute about the gates of Hades because that's I'll build my church in the gates of Hades. What are we talking about there? In the ancient world, so we think of gates, and, and rightly so, you got gates on a city. But gates, throughout the Bible, if we had time, I could show you countless scriptures where what happens with gates is gates are the place where business was done for the city. So they wouldn't have like a, they wouldn't have like a, a uh, city council or city hall, they would do their business. The elders would sit in the gate. You can read about the king. The king would go out and sit in the gate. The gate was the place where there was business done. When when Boaz wants to marry Ruth and he's gonna buy a piece of land, he gets the elders, he sits them down in the gate. And when they're seated in the gate, the business is transacted. So the gates are a place of decision-making. The gates are a place of business. The gates are also uh, defensive and offensive in this sense, that when an enemy would attack the gates, Usually there were two sets of gates. There was the first gate. When it was breached, you'd usually have to go at an angle and, and go at, dis, it would be disadvantageous to be on the attack because they would work it so you would be exposed and the archers could shoot you. So there are gates that, that have to do with the defense of the area. Jesus is saying, so think about this. I'm gonna build my church and all the decisions of Hades, can't stand against it. All the authority of Hades, all the governmental ruling of Hades, can't stand against. it. I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades—they're not going to be able to stop it. They're not going to be able to keep the the, the church back. I'm going to build my church, and so those gates are also—they are the—they are the release of of power of an army out of the city to defend the city. I'm going to build my church. And the gates, the armies of hell, the armies of the underworld, the armies of demons will not be able to stop it. Do you see the imagery there? And he's doing it here at a place that's called the gates of Hades. Why is he doing this? Fourth word, authorization. Look at it, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he's saying. I'll show you how to dismantle demonic power and demonic authority. This is really important. You see, there are a lot of people who don't believe in the devil, which is good news for the devil. He just assumed you didn't believe in him as you did. And if you think he's A funny figure in red tights, carrying a pitchfork, and wearing horns, he loves that even more. Satan is real. There's a spiritual warfare, whether you see it or not. This physical world is not all there is. There's a spiritual world, and the spiritual realities are greater than the physical realities because the spiritual realities are forever. Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the forces of evil in the high places. Your battle's not just with that other person or that circumstance. There's many times demonic activity. Now, let me put it in perspective for you. I'm not seeing a demon under every bush, and I'm not suggesting you do either. The Bible's very clear that our battle comes from three areas. Number one, it comes from living in a sin-cursed world. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. Paul says, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will know trouble. So the world brings its own measure of trouble. Second, the Bible says that it comes from the world. It comes from the, the flesh. Our own human desires, sinful desires that lead us, the unrenewed, the unredeemed mind, that causes people to make decisions that that they choose the expedient or the instant or the convenient or the easy instead of the right. Because it feels good, because they want to. So the flesh causes a number of troubles. People make a decision that's not godly, and it turns out bad. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in his death, the flesh. says our troubles come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there are some things that are straight up demonically induced, demonically inspired, demonically empowered. Some problems in people's life has to do with the powers of darkness. Some of you have a stronghold in your life that has been built over time as you've refused to challenge wrong thinking and it's opened the door to the enemy in your life and he's very patient, just one brick, one stone at a time. He's ultimately built a stronghold in your life. A stronghold is something that constantly attacks you, assaults you, governs you. Some of you are battling habits, and it's a demonic stronghold. And unless you treat it that way, you will not be victorious. Unless you see it that way, you won't know to pray that way. Unless you understand what's happening You'll be just shooting up prayers, but you won't be binding the powers of darkness, and there is a big difference. We could go on and say that in many of the communities we live, the powers of darkness are at work. I'll take Springfield as an example. I know that's not a big town. You've got it in the Bible Belt, the part of the country that is known to be religious, You've got it in a politically conservative area. You've you've got it with all of these churches. But its crime rate is worse than any other city in the country. It's worse than St. Louis. It's worse than Kansas. I mean, we could start naming them. It's got the worst rating you can get. Its poverty rate is number one in the state. What, are you kidding me? All the churches? Its domestic violence rate is the worst. Its drug abuse rate is the worst. I mean, does that seem natural to you? No. And if something isn't natural, I live by the rule, it's supernatural. And I'm simply saying, we can do everything we want, but there is a place for binding the powers of darkness and treating it as a spiritual issue first. Because throw all the money you wanted, all the programs you want at it, and you're not going to solve it. It's going to require something more. And when we call out to God, I mean, this passage has very much convicted me over this. The problem is, too many Christians don't know about this, they don't embrace this, so they're nice people who are rarely bothered about thousands of people going to hell. They go to church and they sing their songs and they live their life. And as long as they're okay, by and large, they're they're not too worried about it. And Jesus is calling for us to recognize the world around us and our responsibility to redeem those areas of darkness that have been in bondage to the enemy. And part of the way that happens is when you and I know how to use the weapons of our warfare. And Jesus is coming, and he's saying, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give you keys to unlock demonic power. Would you notice it's not key, it's keys. That there's more than one way. I mean, it, we, we understand keys. I brought my keys. I, this is the key to my truck. This is the key to get me in the building. This won't start my truck. It won't get me in my house. It won't open my garage door. This won't get me in my office. You gotta have the right key for the right lock. You gotta have the right key for the right problem. Each one of these keys has different letters on them because they know I would be locked out of many rooms in the church, and so I have all kinds of keys. Because different gates and different doors require different keys. And so Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to unlock mysteries for you. You say, what are keys? I think primarily keys are knowledge. It doesn't have to be limited to that, but it's knowledge or it's activity that God calls us to do for the purpose of solving a problem. You say, like what? For example, when Joshua is trying to take Jericho, he's standing there, he's looking at it, he's praying about it. All of a sudden, Jesus appears, the captain of the Lord of hosts appears and tells him, hey, I'm going to give you the key to taking Jericho. You're going to love it. What you do is you get everybody together. You march around the city once and go back to camp and hang out for the day. Then the next day, you're gonna march around and you're gonna do this over a series of days. And on the seventh day, you're gonna march around the city seven times. And at the end, get ready for this, you're gonna shout a shout of praise and the walls are gonna come down. That's the key. They can try to do it on their own. You see, this is where some of you are at. You would rather get your shields and spears out and go at it because that seems to make more sense to you. And and God is saying, no, no, no. If you just circle the problem in prayer and then give me a shot of praise, the walls will come coming down. But if you don't know the key, you're not gonna know the answer. You're not gonna know how to do it. I mean, it's like David, David, getting ready to fight the Philistines. Sometimes he won before and he could have said, well, here they come again, I'm gonna win again. But no, David goes to God and says, listen, what do I do? Can Do I just attack him like I did last time? And God says, nope, I wanna give you a key. When you hear the sound of marching in the trees, then go, because that means you're going to have victory. What what in the world? What does that mean? How does that work? It's faith. It takes faith to put the key in. It takes faith to turn the lock. It takes faith to believe God's going to give you a revelation. But when you do, you'll be victorious. And without it, you'll lose the battle. This is the power of what Jesus is offering. It's like Jehoshaphat, armies are flooding in to Judah and he's afraid and the people are afraid and so he prays and fasts and God says, I got a key. Don't send the army into battle. Get the Levitical choir. Have them go into battle for you and just have them sing. Just get Don and Eli and Annie and just have them sing. You say, what kind of plan is that? But as soon as they started singing, the Bible says the Lord sent ambushes and destroyed the invading army. They never had to raise their sword or their spear. It was a key. Are you with me? Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And there are keys to unlock gates. And sometimes you don't unlock the gate. Sometimes God says, you know what? I don't have a key for this one. I just want you to use the battering ram of prayer. I just want you to pray, 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 pray until that gate breaks and it will break. Now, let me comment briefly just on binding and loosing. So he goes on and says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And this is a wonderful thing. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Remember, he's saying this to his ruling council, his assembly, his ecclesia, his senate of heaven. you and I. And he's saying, you can bind and you can loose. Now, when you read that, you get the idea, well, hey man, whatever I want to bind, heaven's got to go along with it. Whatever I want to loose, heaven's got to do that too. But that's not what it's saying in the original. And this is really, the problem is this is a, much of this whole passage is poorly translated and, and it started with the King James Version and other, other translations have followed through. Um, a word about binding and loosing before we look at the Greek on how this is translated, to bind is, in rabbinical language, is to forbid. So to loose is to permit. So loosing is permitting something Binding is restricting or prohibiting something. Here's the way you would translate it in the Greek. And I want to just bring this up. Charles B. Williams did a New Testament translation, a private translation. And this is probably the closest to the Greek of any. I solemnly say to you that whatever you forbid on earth must be already forbidden in heaven. In other words, it's not you and I telling heaven what to do. It's you and I understanding what heaven's done and acting accordingly. Because in heaven's mind, the battle's already won. That's part of it. It's also the idea of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. Whatever's in heaven, that's God's will on earth which is very, very liberating for believers if you'll accept this to be true. A lot of times, uh, believers are like, well, I just don't know, I don't know how to pray for this. I I don't know what God's will is. Well, listen, let's solve the problem. Is that problem in heaven? Is there sickness in heaven? What's the answer? No. On earth as it is in heaven. Is there dissension and friction in heaven relationally? No. On earth as it is in heaven. I bind that friction and that marital dissension in the name of Jesus. I bind that spirit of rebellion in the name of Jesus. I bind, do you follow what I'm saying? At the same time, I release peace. I I loose blessings. I lose favor. Are you with me? So I solemnly say to you, whatever you forbid on earth must be already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth must already be permitted in heaven. Essentially, it's saying, if it's not allowed in heaven, it's illegal to have it on earth. That'll change the way you pray. When you understand that, what happens is you begin to align your life, your prayers, and your desires with the things of heaven, which makes perfect sense. Paul says we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That's the place where we are. So act like it, live like it, pray like it, is what he's saying. Jesus has authorized us to attack the domain of darkness wherever we see it. And he's promised to give us the keys of revelation. And he's told us that God's will on earth is the same as it is in heaven. But the keys to the kingdom and binding and loosing and having authority only works if you use it. Honestly, and I say this in love. But some of you are so busy using your earthly keys, you haven't even thought of what the heavenly key might be. And your earthly key is not going to solve a spiritual problem. Listen, I, I'm all for fresh starts and making commitments, but I'm going to be honest with you. There's no authority in the New Year's resolution. Some of you are like, Hallelujah. There's no authority in your determination. There's no authority in positive thinking. Authority and power to get hell off your back, and heaven in your home begins when you participate, and you say, I got the keys of the kingdom. I'm gonna use them. I'm gonna exercise the authority God has given me in prayer. I'm gonna line my life up with heaven. Rather than putting up with hell. One last thing. I'll move quickly on this. Exhortation. So now Jesus gives us an exhortation. And we're going to go to Matthew 18 because in Matthew 18 you have the exact same words that we have in Matthew 16. Let's look at it. And I tell you the truth. Notice he says that. And then he says in verse 19, and again I tell you, Jesus is saying, listen up pay attention, this is really, really important. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Same words apply. It's got to have been bound in heaven before you bind it on earth. It's got to be loosed in heaven before you loose it on earth. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, How big does the ruling council have to be? Two, three? Better if it's more, but two or three. Let me say this, it rules out a church of one. So if you're sitting home saying I'm a church of one, wrong, not in the Bible, you need to get a grip and read the Bible and get in church. This church or any other church, we love to have you here. Okay. <laughs> Got that off my chest. When somebody says I'm a church of one, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, no such thing. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, this is authority. Are you serious? Anything you ask for? Jesus isn't worried about qualifying that. It will be done for you by my Father in heaven for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. When we pray, what happens when we pray together? There's a power to agreement that exponentially increases the effectiveness of the prayer. Now listen, we should pray alone, we should have our prayer time, and there's a power when you and I pray on some things, but I'm gonna tell you what, there are some things that unless I include others in my life and allow them into my circumstance and tell them, I need your prayers for this, some things will not happen. It's just true. You gotta know the keys. Some of you are praying by yourself, and you won't share because you're like, I don't want my business out on the street. Well, guess what? At some point, you're going to have to get another person and maybe another person and get together and say, you know what? I need you to agree with me on this because I've got the power of hell coming against me, and I'm asking you to help me bind this in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, when two or three agree, I'll do it. There's an exponential power. Listen, this is why, yes, we have our private prayer time. There are some things that happen only in that time, but we also have our corporate prayer time. This is why the prayer meeting is so absolutely essential. Listen, you in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and he says, if only Israel were wise enough to understand that with God's blessing, one person could chase a 1,000, but two could put 10,000. Now, wait a minute. Think about this. So one person chases 1,000. Then you would think, well, you get two, you could chase 2,000, right? But no, no, no. When people come together in agreement in the presence of the Lord, it, expon- it exponentially increases the power and the effectiveness of what they're doing by a multiple, in that case, of five, and you'd have to assume if there are more people, even more. That's why the prayer meeting is so important. That, listen, if you want to understand James River, you want to understand what's happened, why, why, a, why a church in a small town has the reach, either in campuses or online that we do, It is not because of the leadership. It is not because we've just put together the most talented group of people, which, hey, I thank God for the people we have. More than their talent, I thank God for their heart. They love God from the heart. But even that is not the reason we're seeing what we're seeing here. The reason we're seeing what we're seeing is because you have prayed together. In 1998, on January 4th, we started the prayer meeting. And I can take you and show you a graph and you would see exponential increase in every metric you'd wanna use to measure church health from the time that prayer meeting started. Exponentially more salvations, exponentially more baptisms, exponentially more people filled with the Holy Spirit, exponentially more people involved in church life, by whatever measure you wanna use missions, whatever, however you want to measure church health. I'm just saying it's a testimony to the fact of the the importance of the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting, I'm just telling you, is not optional. It is absolutely essential, not only for the church, but for you. Because there are some things that won't happen Aside from you gathering in God's presence and God working through the body, God is never going to let any one of us think we have all the pieces to the puzzle in our box and we don't need anybody else. He's never going to let us go there. And some of you are too spiritually self-contained and too spiritually independent for your own good and you're proud of it. You think you can hear from God from yourself and you don't really need anybody and you're completely wrong. And I would suggest to you that underneath it is a, God forbid self-righteous pride that ultimately brings God's hand he holds his hand up against you he holds you at arm's length and you don't even know it because anytime you and I think we don't need other people and other believers we are wrong 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 so this is why you need uh, uh, listen I'm not a I'm not there's not a commercial it's not a first year commercial But the truth is you need to be in a life group. You need to be with other believers. The truth is you need to be in growth track. You need to go through it because there's a place for you to serve. The truth of the matter is you need to be at the prayer meeting because there are some things that would happen in your life that will not happen any other way. There's more God wants to do in your life, I'm telling you, and there are battles God wants you to win in 2024. But it's going to come as you and I really learn to embrace to a greater degree the weapons of our warfare, the tools of prayer, the power of agreement, and the binding and loosing and using the keys of the kingdom in such a way that the gates of Hades cannot even prevail against it. i close with this. If you've ever been to a circus, you've seen the elephants, and I realize circuses are starting to do away with elephants, but you'll see them, and they'll be in the parking lot. You watch, you watch them, and they've got this little tiny chain around one of their, one of their legs, and it's, it's hooked to a little tiny stake in the ground, and that elephant could easily pull that stake out of the ground. Why don't they? because they've been taught since they were young that when they fill that chain, they have no power. They've been taught they're not there to demonstrate power, they're there to perform. I can't help but think that's like a lot of Christians who think they're not at church to demonstrate power, they're just there to perform, you know, sing a few songs, listen to a sermon, go home, and the life never changes, and all hell is sitting there In the gallery, eating popcorn and cotton candy and laughing all the while. It's time. Every believer understood their authority, understood he's offered the kings of the kingdom, understood that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the people who call out to God in prayer. And believe God for big things in your life, because in 2024, God wants to do big things in your life, big things in this church, and he will if you and I will seek him in Jesus' name. Come on, let's bless the Lord. Lord, we praise your name.